Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hello, podcast listeners. Before we get started on today's radio show, I wanted to share a personal note. This is a letter we sent to our investors on a pretty big milestone we just passed recently with my company, Cambria. So I wanted to share with you guys because we see the podcast listeners as part of the family too. So here goes. Just a quick note to say thank you. As most of you know, a common measuring stick in our industry for company size and capability is assets under management. In the past few days, Cambria passed a significant AUM milestone. We crossed a billion dollars in assets under management. That means while certainly not a big company, we're no longer a small one. This achievement has been more than a decade in the making. It was anything but certain in Cambria's early days. I remember sleeping on friends' couches all around the country just so I could give bleary-eyed, get-the-word-out speeches to audiences that likely forgot the name Cambria five seconds after I finished. Then there was the excitement of my first published white paper, only to be humbled when they misattributed the authorship to Melanie Faber. And of course, there's been setbacks common to any young company, lean financial years, and the general headwinds of being a small fish in a big pond. But for every challenge, there's been an even greater sense of reward as we watch Cambry evolve and get to where we are today, finally, at a billion in assets. That would never have been possible, of course, without a great team surrounding Eric and me. So a big tip of the hat to Sarah, Keats, Himanshu, David, and Jeff. While countless partners also deserve thanks for their roles in reaching this point, None more so than the investors that have placed their hard-earned capital in our hands. Thank you. Cambria doesn't have a large advertising budget, or any advertising budget for that matter. As such, our growth has come from friends like you who have supported us. Reading our books and white papers, listening to our podcasts, investing in our funds and portfolios, endorsing us to friends, partnering with us as equity investors in our company. In short, we've reached this point on the backs of our supportive and loyal friends who have helped carry us here. Looking forward, we're excited to tackle our next crazy research projects, improve our current offerings, and launch new ones, all with the goal of delivering a better portfolio and experience to the end investor. But for the moment, we wanted to pause and simply express our gratitude to each and every one of you for helping us get this far. So, on behalf of Eric and the entire Cambria team, we thank you. And now on to the podcast. Hello, podcast listeners. We've done so many interviews lately. I thought you guys are going to start to miss Jeff. So we squeezed in an extra radio show. Jeff, welcome. Hey, what's happening? I don't know, man. I, I feel like I'm starting to get emails and people are like starting to miss you a little bit. Well, they know where the real talent is. They're tired of hearing you. You got all these big guests on and we, 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 may, we may have to start doing radio show every week. I, I feel like people... Or just spin you out. We're just going to give you your own show. <laughs> How to use high leverage ICOs to maximize your portfolio. Base and options. <laughs> Is there anything better? Oh, man. Let's see. What, so what's going on? What do you know? Why don't you give us a little update? You've been holding office hours for the last few weeks. And yeah, man. Was office hours was also traveling. Was in New York. Oh, yeah. Got in some fights on CNBC. Lost my sunglasses. Went to Orlando. Orlando was really interesting, by the way. It was AII crowd. And it was, I, I could have sworn the last time I gave a speech there and I, I mis, mistaken it for, mistook it for when I gave a speech to the Money Show. Do you know that conference? Yep. It's pretty snake oily. If you're listening Money Show, I'm sorry. They have good speakers, but but the, the breakout like sponsors are, it's like what not to invest in. But I mistook the two because I remember giving, the last time I gave a speech in Orlando, there was literally like five people there. And so I was fully expecting there'd be five people in the room. And then it was like out into the hallway, like 300 people or 400 people or something. Anyway. I must have thought somebody else was speaking. They loved my jokes. Never heard any of my jokes. Yeah, I know. They, they're they like, where's Swedro? Oh, wait, this isn't the Swedro room. Um, he was actually speaking there too. But the best part about that, other than I had, I had dinner with Wes Gray's family, we talked to Wes a lot on the podcast at the buffet, was that my hotel 
you could take a water taxi to Universal Studios. Orlando is this ridiculous place in general. It's just like it's one giant theme park. But good sign for the economy. It seems like business and vacation is booming. It was also in New York and then finally home. And we'll soon be back to Amsterdam, Switzerland. If you have any Swiss listeners, we'll be there. Uh, and then that's it for the year. I'm not going anywhere for a while after yeah, that. It's a lot of travel. You have to come Except back. back to Colorado. If you're in Colorado, look me up. We'll go cry in our, cry in our beers about how awfully terrible the Broncos are now. It's really depressing. All right, all right. Let's focus. Let's focus. T- take us back to office hours Office here hours. And give us a sort of an overview about what are you hearing? What are the concerns? What are the interests? Uh, what's the takeaway? You know, so the office hours for podcast listeners, if you're not subscribed to our email list, you need to go to one of our websites and subscribe because we do a bunch of updates, notices, and one of the things we do, we started doing every quarter, it's called office hours, and I'll block off time and do call in with anyone in the world. You know, so people block off 30 minutes. And I mistakenly, the first time I did it, didn't set my calendar correct. So I had phone calls from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. What is How many ever? That's like 20 phone calls a day. I've never seen Mep so tired. Oh my God, for two weeks. And this time I'm smart. I did it from 10 to noon. So about, what is that, four a day? I know, and for a couple of weeks. But, but it's nice because it gives you a pulse on what is going on in the world, what people care about. But it's been full spectrum. It's people from Russia, it's students, it's everything from the uh, mostly institutional sort of other professionals, but it's full spectrum, individuals as well. The vast majority are normal conversations, but on occasion, somebody will call in and be like, yeah, I, I really don't have anything to talk about, but I just, I didn't want to turn down the opportunity to talk to you. So now that I got you, I'm like, well, okay, well, you want to talk about fishing, Broncos, farming, I don't know. But there's actually... I think this is actually useful to the listeners because they're almost every call has the same threads and the same themes. And it's interesting because a lot of the people that have the calls, they often think they're the only one that has the same issues. But in reality, it's like almost every call is, is similar. And so I'll kind of give you an outline and we can talk about it in general, but particularly for individuals and even professionals, um, here, here's kind of the takeaway. So first, I do not think a single conversation I've had with a single investor. And so we're talking two or 300 at this point. And by the way, if you're a financial advisor, this is an awesome way to connect with not only current investors, but future ones too, because the people really appreciate it. And these people, a lot of times people would never call in or they would never email me to schedule a call, but because the office hours, it just seems more casual. I don't know. It, it financial advisors is a good idea, by the way, because it, you connect with a lot of current and potentially future climates. Anyway, first one, I don't think anyone has a formal plan, like a written investment plan. Almost every single person I talk to, they're like, yeah, you know, so this is what I do. I'm, you know, this year's old and I'm married and, I, and here's my portfolio. It's kind of like this, but like a couple of years ago, I used to do this and then I switched and now, I don't know, I kind of do a little bit of this and I'm thinking about that. Like, it's just a mess. Like, it is a patch you should almost describe it as the patchwork portfolio. Almost every single one is just like, it's a bowl of soup. And, you know, as you've listened to this podcast, if you're new, we often talk about how useful it is to have a written investment plan. This could be one bullet point. It could be 20 pages long. Um, But in the same vein of like dieting or anything else, like unless you have some framework, it's just asking for you to go mess with it. But do you think this is based upon laziness or is there an inherent fundamental like behavioral issue that's preventing people from I don't know. Down so one and one is I think most people it may not have even occurred to them. Like no one's ever told them, "Hey, you should write down and have an investment plan." We've been talking about this in various forms for at least 8 months, yeah. I feel like. Yeah. I gave year. a speech and I said, "I, you know, who who here has a written investment plan?" I've actually done this a couple of times, it was like no one raises their hand. All right. So how do you get people to motivate to do it? Well, so that's the second part is the people that do think about it. And so the podcast listeners who've been listening to our episodes before, I'm sure you still haven't done it. Yes, you listening podcast listener, you know, do you have an investment plan? No, the answer is probably no. So um, that kind of blends into number two, though, is, is people are really their starting point is always their current situation. So they're wedded to their current situation. And first of all, there's a lot of people that have 
a great deal of trauma and scars from the last two bear markets. I have talked to a significant amount of people that say, you know what, I, I got hammered in the dot-com, then this went up, and then, oh wait, I sold and I, I've just been in cash since. I mean, that is not a, tri- it's not even a minority, it might even be a majority of people. And so there's two, there's two parts to this one. So one, you know, and I was talking to a family member the other day and they were talking about their holdings and say, hey, you know, when I look at my portfolio, give me some suggestions. And I said, well, what's this? What's this? I said, I don't even know what that is, right? And so looking at the current portfolio, but but it's like, should I sell it or should I keep it? I was like, well, you should sell it. He's like, well, I don't know. I'm like, you don't even know what it is, right? So what I want you to do, listeners, think about this. Jeff and I talked about this. We wrote an article about this called the Zero Budget Portfolio. And it's based on what the guys did at 3G Capital. It's 3G down in Brazil. Buffett's partners on a lot of deals. You know, they, they do this with budgeting. They call it the zero, but for companies, is there zero budget, budgeting? No, zero, whatever. It's, it's a concept where the company, they, beginning of January 1, they say, all right, your expenses are, are a blank paper. Would you add these expenses again? And so, by the way, this is a good thing to do with personal finance. You could try this on your own, but your portfolio. Pretend your portfolio is a blank piece of paper. And then write down your ideal portfolio. Not perfect, but just where what you would buy today. And if it's not the same as your current portfolio, you should liquidate your current portfolio and buy the new one. But people don't do that, you know, and it's Richard Thaler partially won the Nobel for this. It's called the endowment effect. People value for whatever crazy reason what they own more than if they didn't own it. Uh, side note, do you put any weight, though, on, let's say, those investments that are kind of in that gray area? They are not inherently cheap. They're not inherently overvalued. But if you do sell, you're going to take a hit on capital gains. Okay, so tax, we're, we're going we're to ignore taxes. So taxes are obviously a consideration. But, but <laughs> I feel like most of the people I talk to might have some embedded uh, losses anyway for, for the way they're trading. So, but in general, let's, let's ignore taxes for a second. But again, if the current portfolio you have, which a lot of people, it's nowhere near what they want to be, is not your ideal portfolio then you're doing it wrong. Like you're, you're just have emotional baggage to something for some unknown reason. And so the best way to think about it is pretend you own nothing. Would you go buy the exact same holdings you, you have currently? Almost no one says yes. You know, they're like, well, I've had this fun. I just think I might come back. Like it's done bad this year. I said, well, pretend like you sold it. Would you buy it tomorrow? No, he's been terrible. Plus he charges 2%. You know, like it just, it's, it's nonsensical. But this is the related part to this. Every single person I talk to wants to think in binary terms. So it's like, well, Meb, you know, I, I'm in cash, and I, but I know the stocks are expensive. Like, should I be in or out? Or I have this fund, should I sell it? Or I'm thinking about, you know, maybe transitioning to Trinity portfolio, but I just, I don't know. And I say, look, there's no reason for any investment to ever think in or out binary terms, but everyone does. And I think there's a lot of reasons why, but... I think it's a terrible thing to do. And so whether it's, for example, let's say we're talking to the guy who has 100% cash. He says, I want to get back in the market or I want to do the Trinity portfolio, whatever it is. But I just, I, you know, I don't you know, there's an election and then stocks have gone up. And I say, look, look, whoa, whoa, hold on. You don't have to think of all in or out. You know, you're 100% in cash. How about you put 10% to work? And then next quarter, your investment plan is you add 10% for the next three years and until you get fully allocated. That, they're like, well, and the reason they don't want to do that is because they secretly want to gamble. You know, so they, they either want to do one or the other. They want to be right and look back and be like, God, that was the right thing to do. But there's the, the flip side of that, whereas you do whatever it is in binary terms and think about, should I buy gold now? Should I buy stocks? Should I sell them? You get that wrong. So if you go from 0%, 100% cash to 100% invested this month, and you get that wrong and that, that, mark, that portfolio goes down 20%, you're you're gonna have hindsight regret scarred for life. You're gonna hate yourself. Like it's there's no reason to be going all in and all out on any decision ever. Almost now now the logical mathematically correct thing to do if you're if you're gonna go is a lump sum invest because if if something has positive expected return, the longer you invest it, the better it is. But from a psychological perspective, that's probably not the best. So what what I tell almost every investor would they have this patchwork terrible portfolio. I say, Matt, you know, what do you, what do you recommend? All right. All right. The starting point is always the global market portfolio to me. If you were to go buy the world, and that's so simple. Think about it this way. It's half stocks, 
it's half bonds. And of that, it's half US, half foreign. So it's like four fund portfolio. US stocks is only 25%. So a lot of people say, oh man, but the market's expensive. Wait, 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 wait. hold on. Sorry, let me back up. Half bonds though, even right now with yields where they are, some negative global yields. I mean, isn't this the end of the historic, you know, bond bull like are you really buying right now i think people have been saying that for like 10 years right well, i mean people saying interest we're, rates we're, i can't they're at three percent to the end and two people have been saying that in japan that's the widowmaker trade anyway so i say look i'll come to that in a second so i'll say look global market portfolio because they'll say oh, you know u.s stocks are expensive and meb you say u.s stocks are expensive and i say i know but in the global market portfolio u.s is only one quarter of the portfolio that's not that much for most people to think about if you said you're only going to put 25% in U.S. stocks, most people say that's really low, right? Anyway, so I say start with the global market portfolio. And so now you want to talk about bonds. But again, this goes back to the whole sort of thinking in binary terms. The nice thing about the global market portfolio is you get everything. So you get expensive U.S. stocks, you get cheap foreign stocks. You get terrible yielding bonds like Switzerland and Japan, which are negative for a lot of them. But you also get emerging market bonds and higher yielding sovereign bonds that yield 5%, 6%. You get corporate bonds, which by the way is a huge slug of the bond percentage. So it's actually bonds have a higher percent in the global market portfolio than stocks do, but because they're corporates, we give a nod to, to the stock side because corporates act like half bonds, half stocks. By the way, this is just the public market portfolio. So if you include private global market portfolio, so real estate, private real estate through housing, through commercial real estate. And the biggest one, and this is what I actually talked about at the Ritholtz conference in New York, where I was a commodities panel, was farmland, which is a huge, actually, world allocation, but no one can allocate because there's no way to allocate to it. But if you just do the US, the public market portfolio, that's global market portfolio, half stocks, bonds, half US foreign. And I'd say that's the starting point. So that's the ultimate in diversification. You can start there. And then, but you talk to people and you say, okay, you know, like, are you, re- are you like ready to implement? Like they say, okay, you know, here, I got a good plan. It's, it's a good idea, da, da, da. But no one's going to do it. You know, it's like starting a diet. When are you going to start the diet? Tomorrow. And pe- are you going to write down this, this investment plan? No. I mean, I'm answering for them. They're not going to. Listeners, if you did, I'd be shocked. But that's the problem is it, it's so much of this feels like personal finance and behaving well. So much of this, there's so much crossover with exercise and dieting. Well, put on your behavioral therapist hat. You know, we've identified the problem. What suggestions do you have for actual implementation? Well, there's one more. There's one more fifth, and then we'll go to that. And the fifth is people like to gamble. Okay. So every single conversation is basically said, the number one question on every conversation is basically asking me to forecast the future. Saying, Meb, how does the world look to you? Like what, essentially, what are you predicting for asset classes? I'll say, look, by the way, everything we do is quant, is rules-based, so I'm happy to gossip. I will talk for 45 minutes on the way I see the world, the way the world should be, but that's not how I manage money. I manage money with rules. Now, some of that aligns with the way we see the world, but but so a lot of these people, you know, we're talking about all these specific investments. Well, Matt, what do you think about Tesla? What do you think about Bitcoin? What do you think about Greek stock market? What do you think about, you know, this, that? And so, but again, it's I think the way that it comes to this implementation now how to do all this. So one, try to have a written formal plan. It could be simple. Try to share it with someone. It could be your wife, your daughter, your son, your neighbor, to try to keep you somewhat compliant. But a lot of people are very guarded about their finances, so they probably won't. But it would be nice to have it something written down. Two, try to be agnostic. And so have your white piece of paper, write down your ideal portfolio. If that's not what you have, get there. And two, in your written investment plan, have a path on how to get there. So don't think in binary terms, all right, fine, I listen to Meb, I'm going to sell it all tonight, I'm going to buy the rest tomorrow. Because that could in- introduce some regret. So have a plan where you scale in or out, dollar cost average, whatever it may be, and, and have a path to implementation. And lastly, if you want to gamble, if you want to go buy Ethereum and short oil and trade Tesla, whatever you do, take 10% of your portfolio. If you're a crazy person, take 20 and take the lesson that even if you do well, that was probably because of luck and gamble away, blow it up to your heart's content because people want to do that with the, but with the core, with your real life savings 
stuff that matters, you know, think about it thoughtfully. The biggest question not a single person ever talks about, no one asks me, hey, Meb, you know, how can I optimize my portfolio for fees? You know, how can I do things to where I implement this in a low-cost, thoughtful manner, partially because that's not sexy to talk about. Like, hey, just go buy a bunch of Vanguard funds. That reminds me of the- Put them away for 20 did. years. The article we did with uh, the most dangerous animals. Remember the mosquitoes versus the lions yep. and sharks? Yeah. And, you know, but again, it's, there's also a lot of undiversified risk people are taking. I think a lot of people still have a couple of stock holdings. And I'll say, look, you know, that could work out. You holding that, it could also not work out and give you examples either way. Anyway, and then, of course, there's the odd Bitcoin cryptocurrency questions. And I say, look, tell you what, you know what? You want to buy crypto, you can buy crypto as a percentage of the world's market cap. So just put it, throw it in the global market portfolio. I'm cool with that. And so people say, oh, okay, what, what, that's 0.01% or something, right? So good, put, put, put in that. And the good news is it, it goes up a thousand times, good, you'll own 10%. That's fine. And if it goes down, you only lost 0.01%. <laughs> But anyway, I mean, it's been really useful. And I think, but the good news is I think most people, like they want to do the right thing. And I think there are a lot of people who are actually really interested in building a good portfolio. I think a lot of people don't know that they're their own worst enemy still. And they don't think in ter- these terms. So if, if you've done office hours conversations with me, if you have a portfolio, you know, be honest about yourself. Do I, ha- do, I do these things? Do I think in binary terms? Am I trying to predict the future? Am I, why am I not implementing what I should be? Do I still own 2% mutual funds? Do I even know what my funds charge? A lot of people have no idea. All right. So Meb, pulling back just as a sort of summation of this entire section, can you add any sort of hardline real world implementation strategies for us? How, how do we do this? Yeah. So for someone who's implemented it on my own, as well as for over 500 clients, I cannot fathom ever going back to managing my portfolio on my own. And what I mean by that is not that I'm not controlling it, is that having an automated investment plan or automated investment service. Some people call these robo-advisors, but the word is morphing enough these days to where I don't even care which one you use. I, you know, Whether it's Vanguard is the largest, number two is Schwab, the two independents, you know, there's Betterment, and then a lot of the wirehouses are adding them. Pick a low-cost robo-advisor. These all do the same thing, by the way, which is fine. Low-cost, global asset allocation, but it just whirs in the background. It places the trades for you. It tax loss harvests. You don't literally do... And I find myself checking the accounts less. Like, I don't even worry about it. I don't even think about it. And it's such a great... It checks all so many of the boxes. Now, the challenge, of course, will be, will you shoot yourself in the foot when markets go down? Like, probably, but, but at least it gets rid of a lot of the other hassles. And so, of course, the way, the comment that I would make, the the way that we do it at our firm with Trinity portfolios, the biggest problem with the buy and hold side is the drawdowns, right? So 2008, 2009, the drawdowns occur, but it coincides, I think what a lot of people get wrong is it coincides with recession. So you have a higher chance of losing your job or the economy going down the pooper. You have terrible geopolitical news usually. So the headlines are bad. CNN's talking about, unemployment going up and the recession and bad times. So it all kind of hits at once. So it's not just the damage of your portfolio. It's also everything wants. So what have we done? Well, everyone knows my investment philosophy is trend following, but trend following has its own challenges and namely it's looking different. So think this cycle, what's outperformed the S and P Well, nothing. So if you do anything, any sort of trend following, and that means a lot of different things, obviously managed futures like this year is having a horrible year, but there's other trend following strategies that are up 15% of the year. So I have a few different types, but the way that we do it, we put the Trinity portfolios half in trend following, half in buy and hold. And to me, that exists this sort of really nice yin yang where you have the global asset allocation as a anchor, but you also have this trend following approach that hopefully will provide some diversification and some risk management and dampen some of the volatility and drawdowns. And on top of that, we like tilts towards value and momentum as well. So my advice is for all the people that we said, look, have an investment plan, write it down, think about the zero budget portfolio, blank piece of paper, write down kind of your ideal portfolio and implement a 
launch plan. So whether that's three months or a year or two years, come up with a way to implement it. And also think about just outsourcing it. So automated investment plan or even a financial advisor. But if you're going to do a robo, I think you want to go low cost. I mean, we charge nothing or the platform fee, whatever that may be. And by the way, a lot of these robo advisors also don't charge any commissions. Anyway, that's a simple answer. Rant over. Mm-hmm. Done. Well, what else we got? We well, have the Q&A? Well, yeah, yeah. But tying into that, so we're basically looking at the global market portfolio. And one of the questions that is from a listener, which we might as well touch on right now, it's um, on global cape values, specifically equity values. Might as well hit on it. What, what do you like right now? I know it's emerging markets, but beyond that, is there anything specific? Chip, you've already managed to violate every... Did you listen to anything I just said? Or this is a reader question? Reader question. Okay. Well, I'm going to... Reader, did you listen to anything I just said? That oh, Just I from mean, a valuation well, perspective. I'm just kidding. The cheapest countries, and we like to average across a number of valuation metrics. So we don't just use CAPE, but we use CA... PS, so sales, cash flow. So we use caps, cap, and cap, basically adjusted price to book. We use about four or five of them. And the averages, it comes up with a lot of Eastern and Emerging Europe, so Czech Republic. By the way, I had a really angry listener that had listened to our talk at Google, which was in like 2014, email me the other day to make sure that I was well aware that it is Czech Republic, not Czechoslovakia. And then wrote a half page history lesson. I said, dude, you're giving a speech in front of a ton of people and you're waxing and you're just ranting about something. Sometimes uh, some of these things slip. Anyway, I'm well aware it's Czech Republic. Beautiful country, great beer. Do you know when I was in Czech Republic, they had a spa and you would take beer, they advertise as having, you would take baths in beer. <laughs> I can't imagine that beer's probably recycled all day, you know. I didn't do it. I wish I had, but they had just the whole it's just a great like almost Instagram photo because they had faucets, you know, like faucet you'd see in a tub, but beer comes out. Anyway, it was amazing. Um, Meb gets so happy when this uh, a beer called Pliny the Elder is available on tap uh, locally. Yeah. It's it apparently was just, this great beer that's not marketed, or it's, the marketing is great because it's not available all the time. Yeah. Meb gets so happy. I think that we should we do we should do that with our money management company. We just say, you know what, we're closing to new investors. We'll only open it at random times. Not tell you. <laughs> Trinity portfolio is only available on certain days of the year. What was the question? Okay, so Eastern, Eastern Europe, Europe uh, emerging Europe, the pigs are still in there, though, because of the performance, a lot of foreign countries have gone up quite a bit over the past two years. Some countries are graduating. Russia is still bargain basement. I think technically Czech Republic is the cheapest, but it only has like 10 stocks in its index. So it's the equivalent of buying, you know, a mid cap stock. So that's not really fair. Brazil, I think, is still in there. We have, let's see, Singapore. I think Turkey. So we publish the, this list, by the way, to the Idea Farm every quarter. So if you're not a subscriber, check it out. Free trial. Star Capital and Research Affiliates also publish some. And Research Affiliates has a beautiful tool website that lets you look at expected returns and for all asset classes and the portfolios. They actually did a fun article the other day that was along the lines of the like optimal portfolio owns no U.S. stocks for that reason, because the valuation anyway. But as you think about that as a portion of the global market portfolio, a lot of the conversations I was having, so the global, I always say global market portfolio is a starting point. And so I give these speeches, I say, well, here's why market cap weighting is not ideal. So you could tilt towards value, you could tilt towards momentum. But value, if you were to look at the global market portfolio, the US is half of global market cap in stocks. But I said, if you were to weight that to GDP, I think the US is only a quarter of global GDP. So if you global GDP weighted the portfolio, you have 75% in foreign, which makes more sense because the US is one of the most expensive in the world. So it's better to have a higher percent in foreign. But you can make the argument of, of none, no US. I don't think anyone would, but I think you make the argument. Over-rotate. Yeah, over-rebalance. Over-rotate <laughs> over would be... It works both that's ways. Like, that's like a golf instructor. Be like, no, no, Jeff, you're over-rotating. Um, <laughs> So, yes, I mean, look, I, I, our strategy that, that does that in ETF fund form is now our largest, by the way. And we're actually going to write a follow-up. We need to get on this. This is, this is going to be my holiday to do, to escape from my family. 
will be to write 2.0 version of global value. I think that needs an update. Okay. What was the question? Where, where are the best looking countries? The, yeah, Cape valuations. Yeah, and then so U.S., so put some numbers to perspective. U.S. is trading at a Cape of around 31. We calculate as the second most expensive country in the world. Foreign developed is around 20. Foreign emerging is around 15 or 16. And the cheap bucket, the cheapest 25% is around 12. Now, that's up from about nine because the market, it's ripped two years in a row, 20% plus back-to-back years. Is that 2016 summer, pretty much, when it turned? I think so. I'm trying to remember right now. Is it 2016 summer or 2015 summer? 2016 was a big year for Russia and Brazil, if you remember. And then this year has been a big year for almost anything else. I mean, even the S&P is having a good year. But if you look at particularly all the countries, going back to even when we published our book, and remember, CAPE didn't work particularly well in 2014. Almost everything lines up in this beautiful manner with valuations. A couple of the outliers. Greece is an outlier, and U.S. Greece is an outlier on the bad side. U.S. is an outlier on the expensive side, but everything else kind of falls into a nice, nice pattern. Anything else on this, or move on? We can move on. So, like, we published the list. If you want to see the list, go to Idea Farm, one of those other websites. While we're on the topic of Cape, another question from a listener says: uh, Do you think it's possible to construct a Cape index for other asset classes besides stocks? If so, how and how useful might that be? So one of Schiller's best papers was on CAPE on sectors. So he did sector rotation using CAPE. And, I, and we'll show note this. I can't remember the name of it. But it was actually a lot of fun because he takes like utilities and the industrials back to the 1920s. And the utilities hit, they were like the internet stock of the day in the 1920s. Or I should say like the blockchain of the day in the 1920s. They hit some absurd CAPE. I can't remember if it was like 40 or 60 or something like that was the hot, <laughs> the hot stock. You think about utilities now, you're like, oh my God, I wouldn't even pay like a 10 PE for those. Why would anyone want a utility? But there does a sector rotation on, on stocks. You can download free valuation data from French Fama if you wanted to go test it yourself. So it works just fine. I mean, but that's just valuation. So the, I, I've gotten a couple emails. People love to keep sending me emails and tweets about CAPE and why they can't figure out a way for it to work on the U.S. stock market. And it's usually almost always they can't figure out a way to time the U.S. stock market using CAPE. My first response is always, look, I'm happy you can't find a way to do it. I'm happy we can. (laughs) One, I don't say that because that sounds kind of rude. But second is I always tell them, I say, just substitute the word value for CAPE. You know, just use any value metric. And if if you were to do give a speech and use the word value instead of using CAPE, no one would argue with you. But God, this stock is cheap. You know, I'm a value investor and, you know, I invest in these companies because they're cheap on based on value. Like people's brains don't explode with that. If you're like, oh, no, no, I use the CAPE ratio to the stock is cheap or this country is cheap on the CAPE ratio. People just go crazy. Same thing with dividends and buybacks. I tried to tell this, uh, gave a speech where I was like, you know, by the way, dividends and buybacks are exact same thing. I mean, the entire audience jaws, they're like, what is he talking about? And so you can go and write, it's really funny, and reporters are particularly bad at this, is they'll write an article just totally disparaging buybacks and just crushing them all the way through. And I say, go back and replace every instance of buyback with dividends. They're like, oh my God, it's so ridiculous. All these companies are buying back their stock and they're just destroying all this money. I mean, you never see an article, it's like these companies, oh, they're like, they're, they're buying back stock instead of investing in their company, Right. How many times have you seen that article? You see like every day. Jeff's just nodding his head, by the way. I think he's just falling asleep over here. The, But how many times have you ever seen an article? Oh my God, all these companies re- have a high dividend yield and they're returning cash to shareholders instead of investing in their own company. You never see that article. You should write it. No, it's not a good article. It's just a t- <laughs> total misunderstanding of finance 101. I mean, this is literally freshman level investing and people get it wrong but, but I, I no longer pick, I no longer take up these fights. I don't I don't engage. You so Cape, I'm I, up. I I gave up on Cape fighting with people like two years ago. I just do at this point I only answer with like a shrug emoji. What do you think about if you look at Cape a different way? You know you're really looking at reversion to the mean in a lot of ways. If you apply that to other asset classes besides just equities, like you know, depending on when we air this, we'll have um, also air the the uh, episode with Claude Herb. Talking about gold and the constant, the golden constant. You know, if you believe that gold's purchasing power remains constant over the years, then there's basically a, a set point, and it should not really 
its line should not increase, should be static or uh, should be equal. Do you think that that applies to gold, to commodities, to other asset classes, that there's also a similar revergence to the mean that you can sort of count on to give you an idea of better or worse buying prices? I think the, the question is, first, does the asset have cash flows? You know, is it a business? Is it a bank? Is it a, is it uh, a bond? And if it doesn't, it gets a lot harder quick, you know? And so commodities, we can go down that rabbit hole if you want. But, you know, the original question of talking about, you know, CAPE to other, is it, again, scratch CAPE and say value. Can you apply value to other sectors or asset classes? I think you can to an extent. And then there's areas like sovereign bonds. We wrote a paper on this, you know, where we just said, you know, we consider carry or interest rates a value approach to bonds is it yeah i mean kind of but it's not it's not quite the same and so then i think something that a lot of people write about and a number of papers written about this analytic wrote a paper about it i know cliff asnes wrote a paper about it cross asset and then i think uh rebecco some some others i try to remember who it is anyway cross asset valuation so if you were to look at the universe of stocks versus bonds versus real estate versus commodities on a valuation basis and doing rotation like that i think that's hard and i think the only way i one of the only ways to do it is to say let's look at this investment compared to its own history and then weight the portfolio based on that so if stocks were in the bottom 10 decile valuation you'd overweight it and if real estate was in the top decile you'd underweight it but it's hard to say, hey, stocks have a 5% earning yield, REITs have a 6%, and bonds yield 2%. Like, it, so a lot of people do this, and they'll try to make some assumptions, and all of a sudden you add a few assumptions, and it's totally wonky. I mean, no matter what, it's it's betting on mean reversion. Yeah, it also gets, again, challenging when you don't have cash flow-oriented uh, assets. I mean, you factor in the commodities, and you know what's to say what's super expensive versus not. Yeah. All right, well, hey, let's stay on valuation sort of while we're on CAPE and whatnot right now. Another listener question. Buffett was on CNBC recently opining that stocks were cheap because you have to view them in relation to competing investment opportunities and interest rates are still quite low. It's my understanding that there are at least two ways to value stocks. First, as you MEB do with ratios, price to whatever, etc. By that measure, stocks are overvalued. Another way, Buffett's way, is to evaluate a form of discounted cash flow analysis to ascertain intrinsic value. Real interest rates are still quite low, and I'd love your view as to how these two different methods compare in evaluating how cheap or expensive stocks may be. I think they're pretty similar. That's it. Really? Ch- channeling Charlie Munger. <laughs> I'm just like, I have nothing to add. Next. Uh, I mean, I, I, most of the valuation stuff ends up in the same place to me. I mean, I think if I had to guess what the person is actually asking. Well, real quick, Buffett is saying, according to this guy, Buffett is saying stocks are cheap. No, he's you, not you are that. not saying stocks he's are cheap. He's not saying stocks are cheap. Well, I'm, he, I, I'm repeating said, what the listener is writing. Th- there's some quote that he said relative to interest rates, something about, it wasn't stocks are cheap. It's, it's, it's well, I think it, apparently it's on a relative basis, stocks are cheap, which has been proven empirically to not be a good model. It's essentially the Fed model. And there's it, listeners, if you have found a good way, and I swear, do not send me some long rambling email that's just like philosophy on interest rates and equities. If you can find me a model that uses the, the stock interest rate that works, let me know. But most of them is simply our interest rates going up or down. It's not necessarily the level. But I, this line of thinking is, is, is a dead end in my mind. So I don't think the level of interest rates, it matters a minimal amount. And the reason it matters is because I think of inflation. So people will pay a higher multiple in stocks when inflation is low, but it doesn't go infinite. You know, it's not like some curve that just goes straight up to where if you have 0.1% interest rates, you can now pay PE of 200. Like that's not, that's totally nonsensical. So if you look at the history of inflation and valuation, so CAPE even, so historical CAPEs around 16, 17, when inflation is low, the average is around 21. So yes, it makes sense that when inflation is tame, people will pay a higher multiple on future earnings, but it's not infinite. Like it doesn't go to 50. And meanwhile, by the way, Buffett has a hundred billion in cash right now. So if he thought stocks were cheap, he would have zero and he'd be buying every company. But I think he's particularly bare. His favorite indicator is hitting some of the highest levels ever, the the market cap to GDP or GNP. You know, so there's I think with Buffett it's do what I say or do what I do. I think it's do what I do. It seems to me like he's accumulating cash. All right. Uh, last question on value. 
Not too long ago, Meb was interviewed by Patrick O'Shaughnessy, and they did a fantasy football draft of factors. To my surprise, Meb's first choice was a value measurement and not trend following. That seems strange since Meb always advertises himself as a trend follower first. Why value over trend? So I feel like there's some famous philosophy or psychology experiment where you're not supposed to predict like the most beautiful. It was some contest where you predict the most beautiful person, but then it was like the second derivative is like you're to win the contest. You're predicting what everyone else would say the most beautiful person is. Anyway, I will, I will put it in the show notes, but, but so my, when you're doing a draft like that, I was trying to also block Patrick from using the stuff that I wanted. So that like, so it's like, you know, it's like if you're draft, it's like if you're a draft, you're Belichick, you know, drafting. This is game theory. Yeah. It's game theory of trying to draft something before Patrick did to block him. Cause I knew he wasn't going to go first with momentum or trend. Are you kidding me? No way. All right. So, meanwhile, you're confusing all these people out there who think <laughs> they know what kind of investor you are. You I know. Well, that wasn't the rules. The rules that. is that it was a draft, and I knew Patrick wouldn't even. Guess By the way, me. your draft team this year is awful. Oh, in football, I'm so happy I'm beating you. Yeah. Well, that I am self-professed horrific at fantasy, but as as all the listeners know, I've given you the keys of the kingdom on pick'em leagues. And we've had a bunch of investors, by the way, that email us and say, I use your pick'em strategy, which, by the way, is nothing more than using contrarian. As long as it's a controlled group, you just print money. You just clean house. Although, listeners, Jeff has co-opted my model and now takes the same exact bets and tweaks one or two. So he gets the correct direction but just enough volatility that he takes a few of my wins away. I hear a lot of whining going on because, frankly, you are now – what seventy five percent down in terms of uh, the overall group? I'm leading the group. You're, you know, bottom, I'm winning. You're, this, you're bottom quartile. I win this week if Carolina wins, or maybe it's you did pick Carolina. I may, maybe I didn't. <laughs> all right, all right, this is this is going off the rails. Let's let's refocus. All right, trend following. We got a couple questions here. Trend following is primarily a binary thing. You are in if the market is above the ten month simple moving average and otherwise out. But is it better to be in a market that is trading 10% above the 10-month SMA rather than a market that's, say, only 1% above? There's someone out there that might have better answers to this. I mean, it was it was a study that I went down and, and went down the rabbit hole of, of going into trying to tease out information on that. So it would make sense to say, oh, man, look, S&P is in an uptrend, but it's 20% above its long-term moving average. Maybe it's time to pull back or adopt a covered call approach or buy some puts or something. You know, and I I just could never find anything that was particularly worked well. It makes sense, so I'm sure there's probably something. Mm-hmm. I just don't know what it is, and I my my inquiry dead ended. I'd be curious, steal an idea that you just discussed earlier in this podcast. What if? What if your signal was shorter? Let's say you're not waiting for the 200 day. Let's say you trigger earlier, but then you start scaling in rather than binary. So, right, just, by the way, by the way, trend following is not a binary strategy. It's applying it in binary fashion is a binary strategy. So if someone applies 200 day moving average, right, and that's it, you're in or out U.S. stocks, that's a binary approach to trend following. Trend following could also be I'm going to use 50 day, 100 day, 200 day, 300 day, and I'm going to scale in in 20% chunks or 25% chunks. I'm also going to use 20-day breakouts and 40-day and 100-day. And I'm also, you know, so you could literally be moving in 5% increments across seven different parameters. Now, the benefit of that is it gives you the average. It gives you, you know, the the full spectrum of trend following returns, short-term to long-term. And it captures the, the beta of trend following. It'll never be the best performer or the worst performer. And we talk about you want the broad parameter stability anyway. And so the paper update we just did, you know, we showed 10, 10 month moving average out of sample, not the best parameter, not the best parameter in the end sample either, but it was in the middle. So it's, it's reasonable. Um, so I think a lot of, so, but the 1987 crash is a great example. I love giving it trend following 200 day moving average or longer. You would have been invested during the crash, lost 20% a day, 200 moving day or shorter. You would have been out, that's a huge difference. But if you diversified across four different indicators, you would have been in the middle. 
So you probably lost 10%, but it's better than 20. Now, if you'd have been out, you would have had zero on that day and you would have been a hero and managed $100 billion by now. But I would rather be out. And the same thing why we use valuation composites. And in all these trend metrics, we often use multiple measures because being binary is not compensated. At what point, though, if you are going with added granularity, I mean, in a real-world practical implementation sense, that gets expensive fast if you have more trades obviously racking up and, and trade costs and whatnot. At what point does it become prohibitive to increase your added granularity? Yeah, I mean, look, I think you don't even need to do trend following in general. If you want to do buy and hold, fine. You know, if that works for you. If you want to do trend following, you could do it on part of the portfolio. You could do where you don't, you could do binary. If that, if that works for you, that's fine. And binary actually works great historically. It's just some people really struggle with that all in, all in one out. Now, if you're an institutional investor, the, the staging in and out helps with liquidity too. So I, I don't really have a strong recommendation either way. For some people, it's just whatever, whatever floats your boat. Okay. All right, let's uh, hit on bonds real quick. From the listener, uh, in the typical asset allocation, would munis produce more alpha than treasuries? What different risk would it bring in, and is it worth it? This is probably something I've changed my mind about over time, which is in a taxable account, I think it makes more sense to use munis almost across the board. Like you, you shouldn't use treasuries. You should probably just use munis and be done with it. And treasuries you could use in your tax exempt account. How do you uh, protect yourself against the uh, the Flint, Michigan's of the world? By the way, I haven't followed that Don't in a while. In it. No idea. I, where, I just think you use the broad are. indexes. I think the broad indexes are probably fine. Okay. All right. So yeah, you it's like good, it. It's a good thing there's not a Puerto Rican e- Muni ETF. What's the bad thing? You probably have a lot more price discovery. So when Trump tweets that the, the debt, what did he say? He said we're gonna the debt's gonna have to be written off or something, which is a shame. You know. It opened up down like 20 points, 20%. Anything more on munis? You good? No, that's good. Okay. Commodities. Meb, how do you recommend getting exposure to commodities? Aside from the physical metals like gold and silver, it's hard to get good exposure because most of the ETFs invest in the futures, which get hurt by contract rolls. So not only are you paying an expense fee for the ETF, you're also paddling upstream with the negative effects of the roll. What's the answer? So we talk a little bit about this on the Herb podcast, which may or may not be before or after this one, but commodities are unique. So you can't really invest in spot with the exception of, say, gold, you know, things you can store. You can't, you can't invest in oil, can't keep a barrel oil in your house. So the way that most people do it is through the financialization, which is the futures. Okay, so you buy a basket. So these two big papers came out in the mid-2000s, talked about commodities, everyone rushed into commodities, then they've just got destroyed the last 10 years. And now everyone hates them. Now I love them. I love them. But I like them from kind of three different standpoints. I like them long only. I like them long short. So managed futures, which is that trend following. And I like them as actual the companies producing them. So like farmland, for example, producing wheat. And they're not all three are different. I was almost a green eggs of ham. I like them long. I like them long short. I like them in the farmland. <laughs> so let's talk about it. But they're harder. So long only, for example, you have to use futures. And by the way, the write-in question was wrong. Roll is not guaranteed to be a cost. It could be a benefit. So roll yield, listeners, commodity returns, you get collateral. So say you have a portfolio, 100 bucks, $90 of that sits in collateral, which is 10-year treasury bonds. So that historically has yielded like 5%. Now it yields two. So there's a difference already right there. Second, you then invest in all these future contracts. You buy some gold, you buy some oil, you buy some whatever. But the funny thing is the academic evidence, if you're purely evidence-based, you could come to two totally different conclusions. You could come to it's stupid to invest in commodities or it's great to invest in commodities. They give you stock-like returns with uncorrelated risk. And it depends on how you weight them. So the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, 80% in energy. You might as well just buy oil. Dow Jones, CRB, different ones are weighted differently. And commodities in general have basically zero real return. They kind of keep up with inflation, but because they bounce around a lot, depending on how you rebalance them, you get a benefit from that mean reversion. On top of that, the roll yield, so commodities, the price you pay for a commodity, a future today, 
and then the future goes out every say three months for the next couple years. And depending on the price of the futures, the curve could either be in backwardation or contango. And depending on which type the curve is in, you by buying that future and letting it roll down or up, you could either that could either be a headwind or tailwind. Historically, it had been, and for many cases, a, a tailwind. But since the kind of global financial crisis 2007, it's been a headwind. But so you can't guarantee. But however, so the first generation indexes were kind of dumb. They just did the first month roll, and everyone was picking them off. Uh, there's been paper estimates that cost three to four percent a year to index commodities if you're explaining how you're doing the rolling because these people just pick you off. So you could have a more intelligent roll system. So you're picking the different roll dates and you're betting on the ones that have the most favorable roll. You could be shorting the ones or avoiding the ones that have the worst. And so, and on top of that, you could add momentum on. So there's, there's a lot of factors in commodities too. And so if you look at the different type of commodity funds, ideally you want the ones that have the kind of 2.0 structure. That's just for long only. See, I, I told you, by the way, commodities are hard. This reminds me of Emil Van Essen talking about how they would um, yeah. jump the uh, roll dates yeah, make a lot of money. Yeah, so exactly. I think long-short works particularly good in, in commodities through trend following. So I think that's a great way, but that's traditionally just managed futures. Okay, Both of those are excuses to pay a lot in fees. So you want to try to find the providers that have lower fees for these offerings. And what was the last one? Oh, yeah. So the last one, by the way, the global market portfolio, we talked earlier about farmland. Farmland has been one of the best investment out there for as long as it's existed, okay? You get price appreciation on the farm, same way as you would a house, keeps up with inflation, plus you get the yield. And historically, that's been equity-like. Yeah, but how do you access This that? is the problem. So farmland is one of the hardest, and I'd put single-family homes kind of in that bucket until the past few years. There's a lot more REITs that have come out. Yeah, Silver Bay. Yeah, in the past few years that are single-family home exposed. Commercial real estate, you can get exposure through public REIT marketplace. Single family homes have been harder, but that's probably one of the largest asset classes in the world, 100 trillion at least, if not 200 real estate in general. And then farmland, it's almost impossible. There's like two REITs that do it in the US. I think it's a huge opportunity. I don't know why more don't launch farmland REITs. But in there, there's a problem with it. So like- But but it's all private. So it's private funds do it. So CalPERS will go buy a bunch of farmland. And the, the beauty would be if you could diversify, you buy- blueberry crops and coffee and wheat and corn and everything like I would love and, and by the way this is coming from someone who has the vast majority of their you know investment portfolio in farmland right and the world probably the world's least profitable farm on the planet but isn't there a fundamental issue with that so I'm, I'm thinking right now of was it like Plum Creek their timber right let's, let's just say there's more and more traditional farmland ETFs but by the basic fact that it's an ETF, that's going to change the complexion of the investment. No, because, because it's time, it, someone owns it already. And if farmland is $20 trillion, you know, I mean, ETFs is a drop in the bucket. Well, right? the, or the, the concern, though, is you own a, a farm. The, the big money that you, buys the farm. You farms. have no liquidity on your farm investment, basically, right now. You can save. There's also very little price discovery. So you, in a, in a sense, are protected from your own bad behavior. If you do this, buy something with a click of a mouse, then all of a sudden it's going to trade far more like an equity versus its traditional Oh, there's no question. So one of the biggest problems with a lot of the commodity producers, and so, by the way, there are plenty. I mean, this is an entire energy complex, oil. Gold, right? Canadian listeners, Utah, just perked up. South Africa. I mean, there's a lot, plenty of commodity producers that trade as equities. It's just not traditional farm. So it's the, it's a lot of the metals and energy producing. So they're already in the indexes. And and yes, they do trade like equities. They have equity way higher than equity volatility often. They, they have a high attachment to their own commodity and, and rules. But in general, yes, they move with, with the equity market. But the big money that's moving in and out of the farmland, by the way, this is also one of the reasons that farmland appreciated so much in the past 15 years, minus the last two. I think it's the best performing asset class across the board since 2000 is because a lot of the institutions were moving in and pushing prices up because it's uncorrelated yield. Anyway, I just wish there was more options out there. Same as some other asset classes. Okay. All right, let's do... Uh Two quick ones on factors, and then we'll call it a day here. All right, let's see here. As factor investing has picked up popularity in the mainstream, I see a lot of multi-factor investments out there that focus on factors like value, momentum, quality, and low volatility. 
Rationally, I understand why investor behavior would cause factors like value, momentum, and quality to perform well. But why low volatility? The low vol factor to me seems to be when I hear mixed mixed messages on in terms of its validity and sustainability as an outperforming factor. I mean, it's funny. If you go back to original finance theory, it was that beta, you know, that that the higher volatility, the higher returns and vice versa, which turned out to be correct, but with the wrong sign, 180 degrees the wrong way. Turned out to be low volatility was much better. And there's actually a professor... Haugen, who had passed away a few years ago, lived in Durango, who wrote a lot of great factor books way before it came mainstream. And we'll link to some of them. Fantastic books, but he was one of the pioneers. Doesn't get a lot of of acknowledgments, I don't think, in the marketplace. But yes, so you actually wanted to invest in lower volatility and avoid the high volatility. The problem is that's now well recognized and a ton of money has flowed into low vol to where it's now in many cases expensive, you know, same for high dividends, right? Like, so this is what there'd been this battle the last couple of years of research affiliates talking a lot about it. And they have this awesome tool on their website that shows you historical factors like value, momentum, quality, low vol, whatever, and their current valuation relative to history. And I really want to believe it's possible for, to adapt your factors and change them or get exposures than just leaving them static, but a lot of people disagree. We don't do any of that yet currently, but uh, so yes, low volatility historically, but it's an example of flows changing factors. And that applies everywhere. It applies with currency baskets, it applies with real estate, it applies with farmland. Enough money goes in and it changes. The example we always give is a swarm of bees, like alpha, for example, like it changes over time, it moves, but still there in some format. So yeah, low vol, in general, would I rather have lower volatility than higher volatility? Probably, but you should become agnostic and just adjust for the volatility, I think. Go anywhere. Back to this guy's question. Uh, value, momentum, quality, uh, low vol, do you sort of treat them like commodities? They're all the same and just invest based upon their relative valuation? No, well, I mean, if, if you try to be factor agnostic, I mean, you still want the ones that pass the kind of sixth grader test. What's the quiz? Are you smarter, are you smarter, smarter than, than a fifth grader? Fifth grader. Where you could explain it to them. Value, you can explain. Momentum gets a little harder. Volatility kind of makes sense, but I don't, I don't know why that it would be sustainable in a world that knows about it. By the way, what percent of the time when you say, <laughs> you know, back to the question, if I just don't answer the question at all, I mean, it must like half the time I don't even talk about the question. <laughs> so this one, yeah, I, I, we don't use low. So the, the correct answer, I think, is I, we don't use volatility as a factor at all. And stock selection, we use it as for portfolio sizing. You know, if you have an instrument that's way more volatile, often you, I mean, that goes back to the the turtles. Jerry Parker, mm-hmm. one of my favorite podcast interviews, where I learned to stop interrupting people. Still do it, but. <laughs> we should get him back on. We, we should. He's great. Um, yeah, that's it. All right, last question. Um, is your recent white paper that disparages dividend investing going to have any effect Disparage on... is such a strong word. <laughs> right. That calls into question your uh, dividend investing thoughts. Is it going to have any effect on your shareholder yield strategy? If dividends are so bad, would shareholder yield be improved by excluding dividends from its selection process? I, I love... So there's been a couple other people that have carried the torch. Larry Swedro, for example, wrote an article about our strategy. So I'm, I'm letting him take all the arrows now. <laughs> he, he vocally, he probably hates disparages dividends. I won't speak for Larry. He's great. Also another good podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, good but, guy. But he, uh, I think he's honest about the, the focus on dividends is misplaced. So the question is, a shareholder yield approach, which is targeting total cash disbursements, right? Is that also fall under the lens of being tax inefficient? Well, it turns out in the U.S., shareholder yield screen is going to generate a pretty low dividend. And the reason being, so think right now, if you do a shareholder yield screen, you'll probably get about it on that portfolio, probably get about a 2% dividend yield, and let's call it 6% buyback yield. So the buyback yield swamps the equation. You know, that's the, the thing that is the big delta. It's the big muscle movement. 
right? Is it's, that it's, standard just for the way the fund is constructed? And well, overall? we're not going to talk about our fund. We're going to talk about the shareholder yield strategy. That's right. That's right. Um, the strategy, a shareholder yield strategy. Yes, it screens for dividends and buybacks. Although I did see a competitor just, is now launching a dividend and buyback fund. And I said, anyone, by the way, any dividend or buyback or shareholder yield strategy that does not use a valuation filter is crazy. This is the whole point. You don't want expensive high-yielding dividend stocks. You don't want expensive stock. You really don't want expensive stocks that are buying back their stock. That's a huge destruction of value. And the same thing, you don't want shareholder yield companies that are expensive. So you have to use valuation. You usually use valuation first. So screen for cheap companies that then have all those characteristics, or you do it after. You, you take the high shareholder yield and then take out all the expensive ones. You end up in the same place. But, because the value, shareholder yield historically correlates very highly with price to free cash flow. Because companies that can buy back a bunch of stock and pay out dividends have to have money to do it right? So they have to have cash flows in the first place. But would in foreign markets, often in the shareholder yield equation is flipped because they still have a history, a culture of wanting to pay dividends rather than buybacks. It's changing. It's changed a lot in the last 10 years. So they often have higher dividends. So, but we did a paper on this where we looked at our funds, but compared shareholder yield as one of the lowest yielding. So that's good. It's efficient. Because I think CEOs get a bad rap, but they're no dummies. I think it's a lot more tax efficient to buy back stock than it is to pay out dividends. But if you were to do some sort of optimized value fund versus shareholder yield, which would be better in a taxable account? I'm not sure I know the answer. I would think that the tax optimized, but shareholder yield, I think, will thump any dividend strategy in the next 10 years. Well, Anyone. Especially all if, of them. If you're adding, you know, the valuation component, super low value ahead of time, then it seems as though you'd be closer to a low hurdle in terms of the opportunity cost of what to do with the money in terms of uh, dividend versus, uh, you know, buying back at prices that are way too high. And and by the way, in the paper, I mean, you and I talked about this, and I've talked about it with a lot of people. I just we never f- didn't feel the need to include it, but I think it's accurate. Is it behaviorally speaking? If you so the paper, by the way which we haven't described, was that you had U.S. stocks and then dividend stocks have historically outperformed S&P 500 percent or two a year. But after tax, they underperform because you got to pay taxes on those dividends every year. And then we said, okay, well, what are dividends actually doing? Well, it's a value approach. Why not just use value and then screen out the high dividend yielders and on an act before and after tax basis, value beats everything, okay? Listeners, Jeff's nodding his head didn't have to explain it to you. You co-wrote the paper. But my one of the things we didn't, I think, elucidate correctly was that, look, so you should never own dividends in a taxable account, basically, high dividends, particularly if you're a high net worth investor with a high tax rate, you're shooting yourself in the foot, put them in a tax-exempt account. The one response I got from people that I agree with, they said, no, no, man, but I need income in retirement and I, I'm, I spend my income. And it keeps me knowing in a bear market that I have companies that pay dividends and I... If it, if it keeps you from behaving better, it's worth its weight in gold. Like, fine, I don't care what you do. Anything is better that keeps you from behaving versus not behaving. So I think it's totally fine for people to like high dividend stocks. Again, I think they're expensive now. I think it's tax inefficient. But if you like them, great. Like, I'm not, like, I'm not hating on dividend stocks. There's plenty of worse things to do. You could actually, it's worse to invest in non-dividend paying stocks that are expensive. That's a horrible investment strategy. But the big lever in my mind is value. Well, it sort of ties back to what you were saying at the beginning. Have a plan, stick with it. You know, if you're bopping all around and, you know, it, well, if you like dividends and you're going to do that over the long term, all right, I'm sure you probably won't uh, won't yell too much. But Are, is it getting really bright in here or am I just like getting delirious for talking for the last hour? Uh, it's you getting delirious for sure. I, I took my 10-year-old niece surfing this morning she'd never been only person on the entire beach not wearing a wetsuit she's from colorado she's like it's hot out here by the There's way literally people in manhattan beach wearing parkas <laughs> by the way it, it's sort of a uh the idea of meb this as a surfer a, this is a Lacroix, by the way i've yet i've yet to see you surf and so i, I, can't I surf. think i'm terrible you are cultivating this surfer image no, which i'm I not am sure. terrible i am i am an awful surfer that is 
very self-aware about that. <laughs> My favorite board is a Wavestorm. If your favorite board is made out of foam, foam soft top, then you're probably not a great surfer. I really want to go to the uh, surf park in Texas. Kelly Slater, they have a... Oh, the man-made I wave? I think his is separate, but there's a man-made wave there that looks really fun. Cambria Offsite, Austin, Texas. You find a reason for us to come give a speech. We'll come and uh, do a corporate offsite at, at the surf park. All right, we are done with questions. Do you want to um, revisit your travel plans coming up? And I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm going I'm to be in Amsterdam, be in Switzerland. We'll be in Nicaragua, Colorado. Colorado's a big one. So if you're in Colorado, come say hi. Other than that, we'll be in L.A. Holding court in L.A. Is that it? That's all we got. All right, listeners, it's been a lot of fun for a long, rambling episode. We got a lot of fun guests coming up. But we may start doing these radio shows because we need... Uh, we need, we need to keep the lines open. You guys miss Jeff. I, I feel bad depriving you of too much Jeff. Anyway, shoot in questions. We're, we're depleting the question bank. So y'all fire some in. Feedback at themebfabershow.com. Got any ideas for us? You can always find the show notes. More episodes, mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher. If you're enjoying it, leave us a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.